Hi everyone, um, we are continuing our series uh, that we've been doing for a while now where we are looking at what does it mean to be a city church, what does it mean to be a church here in the city and what kind of church are we and what kind of church are we aiming to become. Today we're going to look at the issue of, of, uh, of the, the poverty challenge. What does it mean to be a church in a city where there are some who have extraordinary challenges in their lives people who for all kinds of reasons are disconnected uh, who have little material wealth who are unable to access the normal routes to uh, to help and care what does it mean to be that kind of church and uh, so we're going to look at that today and we want to start really by reading just a verse from 2 Corinthians it's a very famous verse it's a verse that focuses our attention on what is the gospel and what has Jesus done for us? And even in this verse is, um, uh, is in, in implicit instruction for us as we move forward in this area. So let's read it. 2 Corinthians 8 9. You're going to, many of you, be familiar with this verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I read it again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So we see uh, there was a, a substitution that Christ made, that he came from the riches, the wealth of heaven, the relational wealth, the material wealth, all the earth, everything is his. They are all of cosmos, belong to him. He was the inheritor of it all, the son of the Most High, God and so from his riches he became poor he stepped into this world that he had made he became part of this story and he took on flesh that was tainted uh, by the sin around yet he himself without sin so he, he, he tasted the sin of those around him he knew what it was to be in a sin sick world he ultimately died the, the death came to Jesus astonishing the giver of life tasted death he became so poor and he substituted his glory for our poverty so that we might receive his wealth and family connection which is what happened so before we, we get going with anything else let's just look at an example from communion now we take communion every week and this communion we celebrate the, what Jesus has done. We celebrate the, the broken body of Christ. We celebrate the blood that he shed. We celebrate what it means to have a meal together, the connection of family. We, there's so many things in the gospel that we do when we celebrate communion. But there are instructions around our attitude as we approach the communion. So let's look at those. It's, there's an example here. So when we're taking communion, we're instructed to examine our hearts and to think about our relationships adopting an attitude of forgiveness towards others um, and the clear logic is this that communion celebrates forgiveness and that we remember uh, Jesus ultimate sacrifice the seriousness of our own transgressions and sins and the glory of being reconciled to God of being brought back into close relationship with God all those things we celebrate in communion now here's the thing it would be the height of hypocrisy if while celebrating our forgiveness freely given from God, that whilst we were doing that, we were also 
harboring willful unforgiveness towards brothers and sisters, potentially in the same room, whilst we did it. How daft would that be? Wouldn't it be mad if we did that? And the point is this, that Jesus sets the course. He defines the culture. And through his actions and teaching, we learn how the world really is and how we fit into it. And the process of what the Bible calls sanctification is where we become, practically speaking, more like Christ. In that process, we submit our ideas and thoughts to God and accept his lordship over us. And we do that by agreeing with the way he says the world is. So when he says it's about forgiving each other, we say, yeah, okay, I'll go with it. <laughs> and so, but you might say, well, I don't feel like I want to do that. Actually, we say, no, he's my Lord, so I'm going to take steps towards forgiving, even if it's a challenge. And it might be a journey, and it will be for many. But we'd still do that. Why? Because he went first. <laughs> he sets the course. He defines the kingdom. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Now, let's talk a little bit about poverty. I want us to think about this for a little while. What does it mean to be poor? Um, um, what biblically comes under the, the banner of poverty? Um, does the modern idea of poverty tally with the biblical view? Are we, when, we, when we talk about poverty, are we talking about the same thing as the Bible is talking about? And I think we need to think about this for a while. Now, there is an interna international poverty index. <laughs> and listen, it does include things like access to healthcare and education. Um, but it also includes something which is probably where we land, which is it includes fi uh, financial um, issues. You know, at what level uh, does 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 poverty kind of become a reality? And that's what often makes the headlines. And I think probably when we think about poverty, certainly when I've thought about poverty in the past, I thought, oh yeah, it's about you know, it's just about how little someone might have materially. Um, now, does that tally with the biblical view? So what does it take to become officially poor? Now, there's strange concepts, but we do need to tackle them because it's sort of out there in the ether. Now, the Bible broadly would have three categories for poverty. Um, and let's look at those because we all included in some of these. The first is the one that we are familiar with that we just mentioned would be this. It would be financial poverty, the lack of absolutes. <laughs> So a lack of food, of shelter, of water, of warmth, of clothing, all these things would be under that banner of financial poverty. And the thing that I guess stands out, it's the easiest thing to observe, kind of thing that we'd be very aware of, makes the headlines in the news, um, and it's, it's often shocking, and we, it's hard to imagine a life uh, sometimes with that level of, of lack. But there are two other levels, two other kinds of poverty that the Bible is equally interested in. And this, the first one is this, uh, is that of disempowerment. Uh, oppression, maybe. So, um, uh, biblically, this often includes uh, foreigners, people who are not from this country initially. Um, the, the fatherless, uh, widows, the physically sick. Uh, basically, people who can't ac access the normal social structures to obtain help. They are a category um, that the Bible is concerned about. And there are instructions in the Old Testament because of that to say, be aware that there are some amongst you who can't access the normal way that things get done around here. 
And I want you to be very aware of them, says the Old Testament, and, and to make special provision for them. So that's the second group. Then the third group, which is including all of us, is this. It's the humble poor. And remember, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says this, sort of access into this kingdom is blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> Best of those who recognize that before God they are disempowered, that they are uh, helpless and hopeless. Um, that can come, of course, and should come from any and all income groups and backgrounds. But it's those who recognize their need for God and humbly ask for his help. Worth remembering here that the Bible cultures knew nothing of government welfare systems. Um, and yet into the Old Testament law, the way that the, that the, the nation of Israel was supposed to function, were built all sorts of provisions for those in all of those, or at least the first two groups particularly. And this was with particular regard to agriculture, because that was how everyone functioned. Most of the people would have functioned as, uh, as farmers, effectively, and as uh, shepherds uh, as well. And so here we have instructions around things like um, gathering of crops. So when you harvest your crops, the instruction goes there uh, in the Old Testament law, don't, don't, uh, don't harvest right to the edge, leave some. Uh, and you're leaving some for people who don't have their own fields. They can come and glean, which was the word that they used. They're gonna, you're basically going to give them some of your crop. <laughs> you're going to leave it for them. They're going to have to come and gather it themselves. But don't just you know, shave the field to the edges. <laughs> um, leave some for those. And, and also with, with regard to vineyards as well. So when you, uh, it says this particularly, specifically, don't go over your vineyard a second time when you gather your grapes. You're going to miss some the first time, don't go through it a second time, but leave them for those who don't have any of their own. You might think, oh wow, okay. <laughs> and that's how, that's how the, the care for those uh, who are experiencing poverty and disconnection was built into the system of life for the Hebrew nation. But there was something else, most staggering of all, um, that once in a lifetime, every 50 years, there was a jubilee year. And in the Jubilee year, if, if you know about this, well, I hope you're still staggered when I tell you, in the Jubilee year, all slaves were freed, all debts were cancelled, land was returned to its original owners. It was like a, a national reset. And we might, whoa, we might have all kinds of questions about that. How did that work? And crumbs, what did that mean if you'd become wealthy? And uh, Anyway, this is what it did. Well, it did two things. Firstly... It meant that once in a lifetime, everyone got a second chance. <laughs> so let's say that in that period of 49 years, you hadn't done well, you made poor decisions, you'd messed up, you'd lost land, you'd had to sell it and money and even maybe sell yourselves to work for others or, or go and be part of another group or family because you just had, it had done badly. Well, there was a reset. You've got to start again. <laughs> And of course, it also meant for the other aspect of, you know, you might have done incredibly well, become incredibly wealthy. And there was also a reset on that side too. And what it meant was this, that there was no multi-generational wealth building allowed. I so said, yes, the, the wealthy would still be wealthy after they'd given those things back, but they weren't becoming impossibly wealthy. It wasn't they could, they, to the point where they could crush those around them. There was a reset. And of course, if you'd done badly, then you got another chance. And there were rules and laws around 
you know, if you made a loan close to the year of Jubilee, you had to take into account how many years left before the Jubilee when you uh, calculated the return on your loan. All kinds of things were built into it like that. But what is it? This is the other thing about this Jubilee year. It was the gospel in action. It was grace in action. It was a reminder of what? That all of it belonged to God anyway. That ultimately all the blessings were from God and the challenges that you face were also seen by God. And that this grace of God, this kingdom of grace was at work. It was a gospel note there in the Old Testament. Remember John Groves talking to us last week about the gospel note through everything that we do. There it is, baked into the way of living in the Old Testament. Um, so yes, <laughs> there, there you see it built in right there. So what then of biblical poverty? Let's look a little bit more at this. Well, we know this is how the gospel works. Sin has separated you from God and rendered you powerless to access the presence of God, uh, the goodness of God, the relationship with God. You're outside. You can't do anything about it. And Ephesians read this verse many times in this church. It tells us about the extent of that poverty. And what Ephesians 2 tells us is that your condition of poverty before God is as serious as it could possibly have been. Ephesians 2 and the first two verses say this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. You can't be more poor and more disconnected than to be dead. And of course they're talking about a spiritual death and separation that comes because of that spiritual death. You were outside of God's family, but God stepped in. And listen, to know anything about God, to be included in his family, to share in his inheritance, you need mercy and grace. The only way that a dead person is going to get help is from a, a God with power to come and bring life back where there is death. And only God can do that. Everyone, therefore, stands in genuine poverty before God, outside of his mercy and grace and God has to step in and of course the entire biblical story centers around a God who was and is in fact merciful and gracious and responds to that mercy uh, responds to that poverty with mercy and undeserved and unearned grace brothers and sisters this is the kingdom this is the character of God this is the culture of God's family and so we come back to where we started this is how he has set it to be. This is who he is. It's not, he's not a God who's actually another way, but he just chooses to act this way. This is him uh, to the heart. We see that in Jesus' own life, don't we? Time and time again. Gracious and merciful. Kind and good. And so that example we started with, we can, we can now use it for this wider gospel application. Wouldn't it be mad if, <laughs> as those entrusted with this glorious, merciful, kind, magnanimous kingdom, were to withhold that mercy for those who are currently outside of it? Because we were just, a few minutes ago, we were the ones outside. And we're the ones who have so gratefully been brought in. Now, wouldn't it be mad if we now shut the doors on others? We would be denying the very thing, the very truth, the very glory that God has given to us. Wouldn't that be a crazy thing? 
Jesus illustrates actually this with a, with a story in Matthew 18. He says this, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he wasn't able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all he had, be sold into slavery, effectively, to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell to his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, was merciful to him, and cancelled the debt and let him go. When the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, a tiny amount relative to what he'd been forgiven. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. This fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, rightfully so, when had told their master everything that had happened. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all your debt because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. Of course, that's a story about, about finances and about forgiveness, but it's the same thing. He had been demonstrated mercy, that servant. And the, the, the understanding from the master was that, that I've shown you mercy, now go show mercy to others. And this idea of, of mercy is baked into the whole of the gospel story, start to finish right through the Old Testament. How could you withhold grace and kindness from someone else in the light of the tremendous grace and kindness you've received yourself? As I said, this is also an Old Testament story. And this was the story often of the, of the children of Israel as they walked with God over many centuries. And the argument often came to them that, look, you have been given so much. Now, don't forget to be generous beyond yourselves. And often the argument, and it is here in the verse in Micah I'm about to read, was that, look, you, look, guys, you're technically keeping the law. You're making your sacrifices and you're, you know, you're giving, we'll read the passage in a second, you're giving of your produce to God, but your hearts are unchanged. Remember, that was the argument of God to the, of Jesus to the Pharisees. Look, you're keeping the outward set of the law, but your heart is, it's, it's, it's far from me. Let's read these verses in Micah and see how it, it can be. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? They were giving their sheep to God. Yeah, that good. With 10,000 rivers of olive oil. They were, they were doing the right thing with their produce. They were giving it. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. So what is it that God's really after? And what does the Lord require of you? He said, look, it's all very well to give all of that stuff. But this is what I really require. This is what all of that points towards. To act justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. And I've talked about loving mercy before, but this is where I want us to finish today. So often with the Old Testament prophets, as we've said, they were to point out to the people, look, you're keeping the outward trappings of the law, but your hearts are unaffected. And this was very, very serious. 
So what is mercy if we're to love it? Mercy is a compassionate and forgiving attitude or action towards someone who has wronged or hurt you. It's the act of showing kindness, compassion, leniency towards someone who is in a difficult or vulnerable situation, often without expecting anything in return. Mercy involves setting aside personal feelings of anger or resentment, showing empathy and understanding towards another person's suffering. It is a virtue that is, virtue is often associated with forgiveness, compassion and love, and it can essentially be an element of promoting healing and reconciliation in relationships. Love mercy, says God. Love mercy. Now, of course, look, we love receiving mercy, don't we? We love receiving mercy. Uh, so when, when we need mercy, oh, yeah, I love mercy, but that's not the instruction. It's to love mercy as a concept. It's to love it when you need to give it. It is to, listen, it's to venerate it in your thinking and planning, to elevate it. Think mercifully. How is my life reflecting the mercy I've received from God? Is it? Are we as a church, are we, are we reflecting the mercy that we are enjoying when we, when we enjoy his presence, when we love him speaking to us, when we see him providing for us? Are we, are we re-expressing that back out to the world? This is the culture of Jesus' kingdom. This is heaven on earth when it is expressed. So how do we respond? How do we respond to all of this? Um, well, Dave Adams in his great book, Embracing the Poor, says this, just in terms of how others have responded through the centuries. Right down through the centuries, says, says Dave Adams, of church history, the church has often taken a leading role in caring for the needy in the wider community beyond its membership. Thus, for example, there is evidence that by AD 250, the church in Rome supported 1,500 needy persons in a way that was otherwise unheard of in the Roman Empire. The following century, the, the emperor, uh, Roman Emperor Julian tellingly comp uh, complained about Christians, whom he called Galileans, as follows. The impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. And so the emperor, the Roman emperor, is saying, these Christians are showing us up. Look how, the, look how they're expressing mercy in the community. They're, they're caring for all sorts of people. And it was showing... Um, their own lack of care. Bristol needs to see this. We're talking about what kind of church, what kind of people are we to be? Bristol needs to see this. This is, this is mercy in action. We say God loves you and cares for you. We say he died for you, he gave himself for you, he's, he wants you part of his family. Well, what is the family like? It's like this. It's a family of mercy, of kindness, of goodness. It needs to be on display. It's all very well to say the gospel is like this. It should look like it is and taste like it is and feel like it is as well. So listen, I've come up with four very simple things. There are many, many things we could say. Four things that you can do will demonstrate your love of mercy. One, expand your friendship group. Now we tend to gravitate towards people who are like us. It makes us feel better about ourselves. It, uh, it sort of validates our life choices and lifestyles. Jesus didn't do that. <laughs> it's easy to other people that we don't know personally. That is to say that's them and us. They are the others. And we often do that in our culture. It's really hard to other people who are your friends. Expand your friendship group. Um, even within the, within the church, within the community. Think about it. Who are you spending time with? Who are you giving time to?
Are they just people who validate me? Or am I showing grace and mercy in how I express friendship? Think about that. Number two, anonymously give money away to other people. Bit of a wild one, maybe. Um, but do it. Ask for God's help and direction but see, and see it as an investment in the kingdom of God. But what you're doing is you're building into your lifestyle a givingness that reflects the givingness of God, the mercy and the grace that God has given you. You're reflecting it back in your finances. Do it secretly. Do it anonymously. Do it. Thirdly, when you see someone distressed, lonely, looking out of place, do something. Now, that might be that you pray for them. Some of us are better than others at approaching people we don't know. And of course, you want to care for those people. Praying for them is a good start. Pray for them. Include them. Talk to them. <laughs> do it this morning. Do it on any given moment. Do it when you're out in the culture and in society at large as well. Do it at work. Do it at the school gate. Why? Because he came and found you. Came and found you. So we would go and find others. And then finally, fourthly, how do you show mercy? Serve on one of the many teams here in the City Church. Look to help the vulnerable. There are all sorts of opportunities in the church and out there in Bristol that other groups and churches are doing. Do something, even if it's just a small start. Do something. Love mercy. Now I want to leave the final few words to the great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he reflects and says these words, talking about believers, talking about followers of Jesus. These men, without possessions or power, these strangers on earth, these sinners, these followers of Jesus, have in their life with him renounced their own dignity, for they are merciful. As if their own needs and their own distresses were not enough, they take upon themselves the distress and humiliation and sin of others. They have an irresistible love for the downtrodden, the sick, the wretched, the wronged, the outcast, and all who are tortured with anxiety. They go out and seek all who are enmeshed in the toils of sin and guilt. In order that they might be merciful, they cast away the most precious treasure of human life, their own personal dignity and honour. For the only honour and dignity they know is their Lord's own mercy, to which they owe their very lives. Father, we thank you that you are merciful and good and kind, that you have taken us out of disconnect and the poverty that comes with that, and you have put us into, into your family. We belong with a, with a history and a future and a family that's international and goes back through time and reaches forward into eternity ahead of us. We thank you. That's what you've done now. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be a people that we will be families and individuals and a church that genuinely loves mercy. We love receiving it, but loves giving it too. That we would be a merciful people. That we will never lack in our desire to let Bristol know that Jesus is alive. That we want to help Bristol believe in this kind of kingdom. Help us to be that sort of church, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.